UCB Life Issues. The climate crisis, biodiversity loss, extreme weather events like wildfires and floods. The weight of what's happening to our planet and the need for change can feel overwhelming. Eco-anxiety is a fairly new term used to describe what many people are experiencing. What can we do to overcome the feelings of despair around the climate emergency? Can protecting our mind and hearts also lead to protecting the planet? My guest to explore in this week's Life Issues podcast is Joe Musker Sherwood, founder director of the climate change charity Hope for the Future, and now delivers workshops and programs for climate activists through her website, climateemergence.co.uk. Joe, welcome along to the Life Issues podcast. Can we start at the beginning? What exactly is eco-anxiety? Right. So the uh, official definition of eco-anxiety, it's a really great question, is um, chronic fear of environmental doom. And that's from the American Psychological Association. So it's this idea that um, we have this ongoing chronic sense of doom or fear um, about the direction that the climate crisis and biodiversity loss crises are taking us in. Um, And it's sort of become used as an umbrella term for lots of the other emotions that, that, or heavy emotions that come with our awareness of what's happening in the world. So you might hear people talk quite a lot about eco- Um, eco-guilt and eco-grief, for example, but there's also overwhelm and confusion and anger and and despair and all eco-despair is another one people talk about. I um, tend to avoid using the term eco-anxiety because it kind of medicalizes it. It kind of... um, you know, when we hear the word anxiety, we we hear this is something that kind of needs treating or needs fixing. But actually to be anxious about the state of the world and the direction that things are going in is a very healthy, caring, normal response. Um, where, where it can become problematic is when it's interfering with our everyday life, when it's actually getting in the way of us being able to do something about it, when it's creating mental health problems such as medicalized anxiety, depression, um, you know, or, or whatever um, it might be in the way that it affects us. So I, I actually work a lot with the term climate sorrow. That's my kind of preferred umbrella term. For me, that encapsulates... Um, all the many different facets of what it means to have awareness of what's going on. Um, And I think it speaks a little bit to the fact that this is a spiritual crisis, Um, uh, you know, the sort of lamentation and sorrow side of, of what we're facing. This isn't, you know, just, um, just emotional. It's also spiritual, this crisis. And that's interesting because when we read about eco-anxiety, for example, in the news, it can be painted as this negative picture. I remember hearing Patrick Reagan from Kintsugi Hope, the mental health charity, and he talks about actually anxiety, meaning that you care a lot about something. So it comes from a good place. So when you're, I suppose, addressing this, it's not a negative thing to have eco-anxiety or climate sorrow. No, absolutely not. And it's, you know, it might not be very pleasant to experience. I'm definitely not saying it's, it's any fun, but it is a sign of our, our deep love for creation. And, you know, I, um, some of us think it's too late. I, I'm not 
of that opinion but some people think you know it's too late to do something about this and and in that instance I speak with those people about the idea of palliative care. So when we know that somebody is coming towards the end of their life that we care about deeply, we don't go, oh, well, they're a goner. I'm not going to bother. We go, because of my deep love, because of my care, even though this is painful, even though this is full of sorrow for me, I want to be with you in this process. So actually our sorrow can also be, is, is so intrinsic to our sense of love, our sense of meaning, and even our sense of joy. The two are, are sort of, um they are inseparable mm. um and that's why you know the sort of idea of eco anxiety is something you need to get rid of it's like oh no it's something to really work with there's so much gift for us in it let alone the fact that if we're not feeling anxious about something we can't we can't do anything about it so interesting it reminds me have you seen the film inside out the pixar yes. and you i i remember my brother saying to me um helen you need to watch this because I love being happy and joyful, but actually I struggled a lot in my mental health. But realising that sadness and ha- and joy need one another is such a absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's this amazing writer, Francis Weller, and he's got a book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, that I'd really recommend. And he talks about how we have to hold gratitude in one hand and grief in the other and be stretched out wide in our love for the world. And I, I love that image. Oh, I do as well. That's fantastic. So... What would you say to someone who thinks that eco-anxiety is just a reaction from people who are, you know, emotionally unstable or don't have real worries? You've done your own research into eco-anxiety or climate sorrow, and it begins with your own journey, if you're happy to share a little bit with us. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I, I wasn't really kind of um, aware of what was happening in, you know, in terms of um, the climate crisis um, until I was in my early 20s. Yeah, I kind of heard whispers about it or whatever. And then I got involved in um, I got involved in a church based climate sort of campaign to try and get churches doing something about climate change. And that's when I started to realize, oh, my goodness, you know, this is something that. Um, we think our political leaders have got in hand. And if it's really this serious, they'd be doing something about it Um, and realising this is absolutely not the case. And there's something about the long-term nature of climate change um, that just doesn't fit with short-term political cycles. And so it's one of those issues that gets pushed off and pushed off and pushed off until it's too late. So um, I joined with a few others in sort of working around this idea of a campaign. And then... um, in, in the end, I had my first meeting with a, a politician. It was Nick Clegg um, back in 2015, just after um, uh, he had, had a terrible election result with the Lib Dems. And we had a sort of tried to talk about climate change. I, mean, I had absolutely no idea how to talk to politicians about climate change. It was not a good meeting at all. I came out of it and I thought, this is, this is a disaster. So I looked around and thought, where, is, where can I go for training on this? And there wasn't anything. So our campaign actually became a training organisation to help people talk to politicians. Um, and we began working with all people of all faiths and none. And suddenly I found myself leading this thing and kind of founding a charity. And we were opening up regional offices. And it was my perfect antidote to eco-anxiety. So whenever I would read the news headlines, you know, I'd read the horrendous statistics um, that are coming out all the time or seeing the increase in all of these natural disasters, I would throw myself into work. But over time, um, 
I, I began to think, you know, the, the question was dawning on me, like, what, what if this isn't enough? What if this doesn't work? And so I would just work harder and harder. And eventually I began to burn out. So I, um, I sort of in my in my mental health, I was starting to feel very depressed, very anxious, very cynical, jaded. The joy that I used to enjoy in things just felt completely meaningless in comparison to what was happening in the world. Um, but I sort of kept on going, kept on pushing through. I felt huge amounts of guilt about doing anything for myself. And then eventually, as happens in burnout, my body started talking to me. My body started saying, no, we can't carry on like this. So I started getting colds and viruses and, and all sorts of strange aches and pains until eventually I actually ended up in hospital a few times. And that was when I thought, no, I'm really going to have to listen to this. Um, and I had a, a very profound burnout experience it took me a good couple of years to recover from it I you know I couldn't work over much of that period of time um, and had to step down from my role and that was when I realized there has to be a different way of approaching activism that isn't kind of caring for the planet versus caring for ourselves there has to be something that that brings these two together and of course there are so many people out there already working in that way I've been learning from and discovering some new strategies for myself um and I would say, you know, as a Christian, I was sort of brought up with this idea of pouring myself out until I was empty. And the new image that I feel God has called me to work with is this idea of having our cups filled up so that they are overflowing to other people. And so this kind of constant and sustainable giving to the world, as opposed to boom and bust, kind of empty ourselves, oh, I have to go and take some time out. So it's been a real journey. And, and that's kind of how I've ended up doing what I'm doing now. And I know you write regularly on your website, climateemergence.co.uk. And we'll be hearing a bit more about some of the advice you have for us on that. You are listening to the Life Issues podcast from UCB. Joined this week by Joe Musker Sherwood discussing eco-anxiety. And Joe, I want to pick up on particularly who eco-anxiety is affecting at the moment. Obviously, there's no one who is, um, you know, untouchable with this, but there is a certain demographic who are finding that this is something that they are struggling with. Yes, definitely. So um, you probably come across a report that came out from the University of Bath and others last year, and it was um, it was a, a massive study. It was in over 10, 10 different countries and um, it surveyed young people and found that um, just 5% of young people aren't worried about climate change. And so 95% of young people are worried about, is the world going to be habitable for me when I'm an adult? And probably the most shocking statistic for me was that 45% of young people reported that their daily functioning was affected by eco-anxiety. So they were trying to kind of go about their lives as young people. They should be worrying about, you know, their grades or who they want to date or whatever it is. And instead they're worrying like, is the planet actually going to be here for me when I'm an adult? What's the point in the work that I'm doing um, to, to build a life for myself? Um, and it's getting in the way of their capacity to just be, you know, healthy, happy, carefree young people. And talk to us a bit about why you think young people in particular are affected by this. I know uh, the campaign group, Teach the Future says the increasing numbers of young people suffering from eco-anxieties because their education failed to tackle their concerns over the climate. Right. So, yeah, when when we're thinking about how we communicate about the climate crisis with young people, we can 
kind of fall into the trap of thinking, oh, we need to protect them from what's happening. We shouldn't tell them what's going on in the world. Um, but actually, what so much of the research coming out around young people's mental health is showing that actually um, young people want to know, they will find out on social media and so much better that they receive that understanding of what's happening in the world from sources that they trust. Um, and again, what, what this report showed was one of the most damaging impacts of eco-anxiety was the lack of trust that young people were developing in people in positions of authority, that they don't care about young people's future, that they're not trying to protect young people's future, that they're lying to young people about what the future looks like. Um, and so, yes, actually, education has a really important role in saying to young people, this thing is happening. We don't know what the future holds, but we do know that we are going to come together and we are going to do everything we can to do something about this. And I think that's why it's so important that um, news outlets, as well as education, as well as in kind of mainstream conversations, we are uh, literate in having these kinds of conversations because for all people of all ages that I talk to, the hardest thing for them about their eco-anxiety or their climate sorrow is their feeling that they're carrying it alone. They're feeling they can't talk to other people, that there's something wrong with them, that they see the world in this way. And as soon as they can just open their heart and say, this is what I'm feeling, this is what I'm scared of, you can see that kind of lightness coming back and that resilience to actually face into what's happening. So it's that, it's that kind of cultural silence that's doing us the most damage around this in terms of mental health. And... Is this an opportunity for the church to step in? You know, we, we read, whether they're true or not, in your local community that, you know, churches are seeing an exodus of young people. But if this is, as you say, something that is affecting 95% of young people who are concerned about the planet and, and what's happening to it, then actually having these conversations, talking into what God's called us to do as stewards to look to care for this creation this is an amazing opportunity to actually share God and how we can together look after what God's given us right absolutely the you know this kind of feeling this growing sense among young people of not being able to trust people on authority and this lack of integrity I mean that's something that the church has to model um, and something that the church has been criticized on one of the reasons why young people do leave the church is that feeling of you know does this have integrity to it and so the way that churches are treating their land their buildings where they're getting their energy from um, the way that they're talking about these issues within church and within their community Communities, the lifestyle changes people are making, the, the ways in which they're getting engaged in political action. These are all ways that we can signal to young people that actually this is a community that deeply, deeply cares, not just about its own, but actually about the rest of the world as well. And it's that putting that, that faith into action. Um, so I think it's, it's so important. And also, so, you know, this kind of idea of community and church is so good at community when it's done well. I mean, it's our thing, right? It's building community together. And so many people in society need that, uh, feel so isolated. And so in terms of the well-being aspect and the mental health aspect of eco-anxiety and our capacity to support each other and, and go through difficult things together, the church has so much to offer in, in that respect as well. Mm. Now, I know on your website, climateemergence.co.uk 
you talk about how the blame or shame narrative used by some environmental activists and campaigners, you know, that humans are responsible for ruining the planet. Can this do more damage than good in terms of trying to galvanise people to act? Can it actually have the opposite effect? Okay, you're going to get me on a roll now. <laughs> this, is, this is one of the things I'm most passionate about. So, um, you know, for, for, for decades, the environmental movement has had this kind of awful stereotype of being something, you know, that, that blames and shames people. And I, I totally understand where that comes from, because it is scary what's happening. And when when you look at something scary happening, you automatically look at what's the cause for that and how can we stop it and and all of that. The problem with the, the blame and the shame is that it can kind of feel effective in the short term um, because we, you know, if we do that to ourselves, like, right, I'm going to give up meat, I'm going to give up flying, I'm going to do my recycling and do all of these things. But because it's coming from a fear place, um, it's actually not sustainable. It's not something that many of us are able to keep up Um because our, our bodies are, are kind of not wired to produce our fight and flight response over a long period of time. It was always intended to, you know, run away from a hungry lion that was right in front of us, as opposed to kind of um, motivate a lifelong change in our carbon footprint. Um, and it can also, you know, feel a feel effective in communicating with others because we can kind of discharge our ne negative emotions by blaming those people around us. So um, it can kind of feel good in the short term, but in the longer term, it it generally has the opposite effect where people around us don't want to talk about it anymore. They want to shut down from it. And in ourselves, when we can't live up to our own standards, we can become very despondent and feel, you know, it can affect our self-esteem and then that can lead to depression and, and all of that. So um, really, you know, I like to think about um, our, our, our carbon footprint as something we're in relationship with. It's not a, a tick box exercise of, you know, how can I get this down? Am I doing this? Am I doing that? Um, for some that might be helpful, but for me, I think of my carbon footprint as something I'm in relationship with. So there aren't um, that many hard and fast rules. It's this constant, I love the planet. I, I love God's creation. And because of my deep love, I want to make these changes. Sometimes that deep love for the planet conflicts with deep love for other things and other values. And that's where the relationship aspect comes in and working it out together as opposed to getting ourselves in a pickle and being like, well, I want to do this, but it clashes with that and I don't know what to do. Um, and there's also this got to be this recognition in terms of kind of personal responsibility that we do live in imperfect systems um, and we as individuals are not to be blamed or shamed for that we are instead you know here to shoulder responsibility where we can um, and and then begin to think right how can I craft a world a, a way of living in the world that has as little harm to it as possible so yeah I really tend to steer away from that shame and blame it psychologically it shuts us down when we go into shame we actually experience very similar symptoms when we go into shame as we do when we experience trauma. Our front brain shut out. We can't think straight. We get hot flushes. Um, you know, our creativity and collaboration and all of that goes really, really unhelpful. Whereas when we feel empowered and when we're moving from that place of love, um, we are so much more well-equipped to respond to the challenges that are coming our way. 
And that's interesting as well, because we're discussing eco-anxiety or climate sorrow, as you like to term it. But actually, what you're sharing is through blaming and shaming, that's a whole other mental health issue that's created, a different one, mm-hmm. but it can also have the same impact of you know, maybe paralysis if it's something that is affecting us. Right, exactly. So this feeling, not just with climate justice, but all the other justice issues out there that we can't even get out of bed in the morning without in some way causing harm is so, so difficult to live with and to navigate. And of course, with social media, we're seeing so much more in the world that we have to process, um, which is not something that our brains have kind of evolved yet to do. So it's a definite life skill that we have to develop in order to protect our mental health and figure out how can I show up to the world without ignoring what's going on in the world, um, but also living with the kind of integrity that I would like to live because that's so important to our sense of self. If we don't feel like we are living with authenticity and integrity, um, our mental health begins to spiral very, very quickly. Um, There's a model that I love called the window of tolerance and um, it's taken from trauma theory. And the idea is that when we're within our window of tolerance, we are creative, resilient, responsive, collaborative. And when we're outside of our window of tolerance, because something has become too stressful, um, we go into one of two states. And the first of those is despair, which is totally immobilizing. That's our kind of freeze response where we just go, oh my goodness, you know, I'm dying, I'm dying, everyone's dying. This is, I just have to shut down. And we've all had that experience. Um, of and, and that's totally immobilizing. Um, but the other side of our window of tolerance we can move into is denial. Nope, this isn't happening. This isn't happening. I'm going to pretend that this isn't happening. We kind of run away from it or fight it, pretend that it isn't happening. And um, of course, that's really immobilizing too, because then we can't respond to the problem. And so that's why, you know, climate denial is as much a symptom of eco-anxiety as climate despair is. Um, So that's why the self-care is so important, because it brings us back into our window of tolerance um, and keeps us wherever possible in a place where we can face what is happening without becoming immobilised by it. That is so interesting. I've never thought of it like that. And that's so helpful. And I'm looking forward to hearing more on your strategies that I know you write on. But I want to stick with just this whole kind of blame culture that has been created. And I I want to ask you about... um, older generations. I know that it's been said by some climate activists that, you know, older people are to blame for the kind of where we're at with the climate crisis. Um, But I think of my grandparents, you know, and they may not have been as aware or even my parents in terms of the state of the planet growing up as some young people are. But their lifestyle was much more eco-friendly. You know, they fixed things when they were broken rather than buying something new. They didn't buying new clothes, they made their clothes, they, well, food waste was, I mean, it wasn't even a thing. You know, they ate everything and reused it and boiled it and created something new from it. And I think we can actually learn a lot from older generations. And I suppose this does speak into then this whole topic of eco-anxiety and and ways of really kind of addressing it as well and the conversation around it. Right. I, I love how you finished that. Right. It's, you know, it's a conversation, you know, can so easily get into, you know, I'm doing this and doing that and doing that, or they're doing this, doing that, doing that, doing that, and, you know, and, and actually we're all just doing our best. We're all just doing our best and we are pack animals. So, you know, okay. It's easy to, to look at other people and think, why, why are you doing that? And it's like, well, you, you get caught in a culture or a particular way of doing things. And 
because we are communal creatures, we were made to be in relationship, um, then we are influenced by what other people are doing. And it's quite unusual to stick your head uh, you know, above the parapet and go, hey, I'm going to do this differently. And that's, that's where profits come in. And that's why we have profits and we need profits. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's all about that conversation with each other and figuring this out together. The, as you say, the older generation have much more of a sense of, you know, it's, it's not right to waste things, which is so integral to climate activism. Um, and the younger generation are a lot more literate, for example, around mental health and a lot more able to say, look, this isn't this isn't okay. I you know I don't care um, you know how how much we're you know needing to keep going with the way things are. This is not okay. This doesn't make me feel okay. So there's so much for the generations to learn from each other, and that's again you know where climate change is just so so not just a scientific or political issue. It it links into every aspect of our lives and every aspect of social justice, like racial justice, for example. And again about the separation. That we have between generations that's not good for climate change either because we can learn from each other um, as you've just been talking about and and so that's one of the things i love again about climate change as an issue is that it's a great lens through which to actually see all the other things that are in need of healing um, in in our world as well you are listening to the Life Issues podcast from UCB. This week, discussing eco-anxiety with my guest, Joe Musker-Sherwood, who has a website, climateemergence.co.uk. Now, Joe, I know you are a Christian and we've talked about the role the church can have in terms of a conversation in this and also being that example. Uh, you talked about many young people struggling with trusting those in authority, uh, given what we're seeing in our news a lot. Um, but I wonder, just the quite a simple question, really, but when we're talking about eco-anxiety or climate sorrow, as you like to coin the term, should Christians, should we have this fear, this anxiety? Right, that's a great question. Um, I think... <laughs> For me, this is where I like to talk about courage, right? Because it's a, a fruit of the spirit. And courage is not the absence of fear. And courage is instead the, the capacity to feel our fear and to choose to move in love rather than to, to react in fear. Um, so where my faith helps me hugely is to be able to release that overwhelming sense of responsibility and that overwhelming sense of despair about the direction of things to God. When I think about how it must have felt for the disciples when they witnessed Jesus on the cross and that sense of despair that they'd gone all in for this thing and all in with this person and they thought that it was going to be the best thing that had ever happened to them and to the whole world and instead it all ended in this awful moment and they were going to be living with the shadow of that for the rest of their lives and how God turned that, that worst moment round for good. Um, no one could have seen it at that time. And so that's always my prayer to God is, you know, I will do everything I can to steward your creation. I will be in partnership with you um, in, in loving and moving in love. But ultimately I hand this over to God. That doesn't make my fear go away. It doesn't make my anxiety go away. Um, it makes it bearable and it stops it immobilizing me. And 
I think of the you know the idea that we are in partnership with God as we um, as we move through essentially the 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 I guess the outcomes of what it means when we're not in alignment like climate change it's it's a result of our self-centeredness and it's a result of our selfishness and it's a, a result of our not uh, our inability to collaborate so this isn't something in my mind god has created this is a pickle that we humans have got ourselves into and god is coming alongside us as god always does to move and say right you know where can we make goodness out of this where can we find transformation and healing out of this and that's that's our role as christians or certainly that's the way that I like to approach it as a Christian. You've spoken into how we can be immobilized by the weight of what's happening around us. And I wonder, sometimes in society, it can feel like everybody is right behind the need for change to stop the climate emergency. But with huge global events like the rising cost of living, like wars, or even on, on a local level, I know my <laughs> where I live, the littering is a constant issue that I'm part of the local litter busters group, but it's this constant cycle of picking up. When will it ever get better? And it can feel like some people just aren't taking it seriously, their responsibility. So how can we galvanise, empower, encourage people to take responsibility, but not, as we talked about, you know, shame them? Yeah, that's also a great question. I think for me, it's all around modeling in ourselves the way that we would like the life to be and or, or like the world to be and um in that I don't just mean kind of you know having squeaky clean lifestyles I actually mean modeling um uh, in addition to the lifestyle changes that we make modeling the, the way in which we have this deep love for creation that brings us joy and that this is part of our discipleship. And so rather than, um, you know, living a, a green lifestyle being associated with, as we've talked about shame and blame and denying ourselves and saying, no, 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 no. Instead it's around um, trying to model this sense of overflowing love that brings great joy. So for example, I, <laughs> bashed on at my parents for quite a while about, you know, you should be eating less meat. And like, I was totally falling into that kind of wagging my finger and telling people what to do um, thing. And it's like so easy to do. Um, and then I, then I realized, you know, when they come over, I'm just going to cook the best possible vegan food that I can. And they just loved it. <laughs> they just loved it. And so they, Oh, what's this? And what's this? And what's this? And, and, and so then naturally they started cutting down on their meat and dairy. And it was, it was so much better than making the logical case. You know, do you know about the suffering of animals? Do you know about the carbon emissions? Sort of people are shocked and they feel awful, but it's not something they want to go home and think about. Whereas, gosh, that delicious tasty meal. Hey, and it was better for the planet. It's it's a wonderful way of working. So in, in every way, I try to um, link my climate activism with joy and a sense of overflowing joy. And I found that other people then, they, they want to be part of that. Um, and yes, that's hard against the backdrop of this closing window of opportunity, but it's a lot more enjoyable. And I, I actually think it's a lot more effective. Um, so that's that's definitely been my my kind of new approach over the last few years. And um, 
I feel like it it actually sustains me as an activist as well. So I can keep going um, a lot more than, you know, being at risk of burnout as I was before. It's interesting hearing you share. We can create a positive narrative, a positive action around the climate. Even the word crisis, I find hard. The climate emergency, mm-hmm. we can call it. And I, I remember hearing Catherine Hayhoe, the uh, Christian climate scientist, in terms of making decisions, she's up there uh, giving advice to governments. And she said when she had a big meeting with uh, a huge oil company over in the States, because of her role, they, they expected her to come in with her wagging finger. But the first thing she did was to say thank you for the impact that the Industrial Revolution, the fossil fuels have had on our world. There's been a lot of positives from, you know, transport to medicine to industry. And actually, they were so shocked by her coming in with not this wagging finger, not this how dare you, I'm right, you're wrong. And that then led to a really good conversation rather than this kind of defensive and us against them. Uh, And I think that's really important as well, isn't it, around the whole fact that it's impossible to live a carbon neutral, eco-friendly, perfect existence unless you, well, maybe there is a way of doing it, but it's very hard to, to live in a society like ours where we live a perfect, sustainable life. We can try, like you say, but actually there's much more of a nuanced conversation to be had around this whole topic. Right. And if you are in a position where you can have, you know, a, a completely uh, squeaky clean lifestyle, chances are that comes with a heck of a lot of privilege. And that's where the race piece comes into this as well. So um, that's where it's also problematic when we say, you know, humans are wrecking the world. It's like, well, what humans are you talking about? Because there are all sorts of indigenous communities that actually are constantly restoring the world. And we have lived in harmony with nature for a very long time, um, up until our relationship with nature in Western culture significantly changed. But also, you know, you have to have money to get the solar panels or to even change to a different energy supplier um, and, and be in a privileged position to do that. So it's it's also again this is where the relationship side of our carbon footprint come, comes in and also our relationship with each other um and figuring this out together because this is this is quite a conundrum and we don't know right now how we are going to make our way out of this or if we're going to make our way out of it but one thing's for sure we'll make our way out of it together one way or another so it's all around this you know figuring out together what does it mean to live in community? Because this is ultimately um, an emergency that has been caused by, you know, us thinking of ourselves as little individual units and not realising, hey, this this whole everything, it's connected, um, everything. You have this brilliant website, climateemergence.co.uk. You've also, you are in writing programmes for people who are activists in the area of the climate and the environment. Can you give us some practical tools, some tips on how we can manage our climate sorrow, our eco-anxiety and, you know, build that resilience and strength to keep fighting and caring for the planet, not be immobilised, but also look after ourselves. Yes. Okay. So um, I have a framework, Grace, Grounding, Gratitude and Growth. It's four gr words um, that that basically make up my self-care practice that helps keep me in my window of tolerance, as I was talking about earlier, or helps keep me feeling resilient and able to face into things. So um, this is something, you know, 
that anyone can adapt. And people are probably doing aspects of this already. Um, but the, the grace, the first one, is just finding that bit of stillness practice, that time with God in prayer to remember we are human beings before human doings. We don't have to earn our place in the world. That's been done for us already. Um, so really connecting with that sense of grace, rest, um, and uh, taking that time out to enjoy and be in the world that God has created. Um, grounding, my second gr- word is, is all about getting out of our heads. When we're scared, we get so up in our thoughts and we're always kind of ruminating about the past or worrying about the future. Grounding is about getting out of our heads and into our bodies. So that could be some kind of movement practice or exercise. It could be um, connecting with our senses. It could be connecting with nature, but giving our, our anxious brains a break by getting into our senses, grounding in our bodies. Um, gratitude, having a, a regular gratitude practice we're commanded so many times in the Bible to practice gratitude because it is not something that comes naturally to us as humans. It's a practice that we do need to cultivate. And there's all sorts of research shows that if we actually take the time out to practice gratitude, um, we grow more resilient parts of our brain. It happens naturally within us. So I write 10 things I'm grateful for at the end of each day. It really helps me. I usually get to about seven. I'm like, oh, struggling to think of things. And that's when I'm growing my my uh, my gratitude muscle um, but it's very hard to feel anxious and grateful at the same time um, so that's that's why that one's so helpful and then growth my final one just you know taking that step back whether it's once a day or once a month to actually think um, well, how am I making meaning in this how, where am I being called in this so I do a bit of journaling every day I also have a spiritual accompanier who helps me kind of figure out how am I growing through this and growing in the discipline of love um, amidst all these challenges? And where can I continue to kind of grow in my, in my discipleship and make sense of this story that's unfolding? So those are my four little things, grace, grounding, gratitude, growth, um, that kind of keep me, keep me going. That is fantastic. I'm definitely going to be applying that. And I can amen you on the gratitude. I've learned you don't have to feel thankful to be thankful. And you've definitely <laughs> shared exactly why that is. That's so helpful. <laughs> I want to ask you your advice for adults as well, maybe who've got children or aunts and uncles, grandparents who we've talked about, you know, the impact that eco-anxiety is having on so many young people. So I'm sure those gross work too. But do you have any advice for adults helping young people as well? Absolutely. So there's such an important role actually uh, for adults when speaking to young people or children in con- in containment. So essentially creating a safe space where young people can feel heard. So the most important role you can do if a young person comes to you with a concern about this or you think that they might be concerned about it is to open up the conversation and then to listen and to affirm um, and to, to rest- you know do what we can to restore that sense in which um, people in positions of authority really, really care. Um, so it's that that listening, um, coming alongside, affirming, and then that message of, you know, we are going to do everything we can about this. Let's, you know, we can't pretend, oh, it's all going to be fine. Don't worry. Not that. And, and definitely not. Yeah, me too. I think this is all going to hell in a handbasket. Not that either, but that real sense of coming alongside and saying, do you know, when people come together, we can do amazing things. Let's come together. Let's 
do something about this together. And after that period of real listening, exploring, you know, what what would you like me to do? Or what would you like support to help you do? Um, and, and in that way, kind of helping young people to feel they're not alone in this. There are people who've been in the world longer than them that are carrying this with them. I love it. Asking questions and listening are two of the most important things we can do. Um, You mentioned community and the importance of community. I know you've got a Facebook group that you run where people might be interested in in joining up if this conversation has really sparked something in them. Right. Yeah. So it's it's called the Self-Care for Climate Activist Facebook group. It's free and I do kind of regular little mini workshops and lives in there um, around different aspects of climate activism. There's a wonderful community kind of supporting each other and sharing strategies, having discussion. Um, so definitely take a look at that, the Self-Care for Climate Activist Facebook group. And the, the other thing I'll mention is... Um, I run a, a membership program called The Rest of Activism. Um, and it's really for, you know, if you're feeling lonely or isolated, burned out, un- under-supported in um, your kind of sense of caring for the planet and caring for creation, um, then it's an opportunity to get that resource and get that joy back, kind of keep facing into what's happening. So we meet every single week Um to support each other um and i give kind of exercises and tools and um uh sort of meditations that support people and then there's that discussion there's whole other aspects to it as well so if you want to find out more about that the details are in the facebook group as well you can go to my website if you're not on facebook um but yeah it's called the rest of activism um and um yeah I'm, I'm really excited about it. <laughs> yeah, it sounds fantastic. The website Joe referred to is climateemergence.co.uk. Uh, before you go, Joe, one more question to ask you. You've given us some great tools there and um, advice on how to deal with eco-anxiety, building that resilience within ourselves and, and also caring for the planet. But I want to ask you your advice on a practical level when we're talking about the feelings of powerlessness that can come and overwhelm us when we are thinking about what's happening to our planet and the size of the need for change. You know, we know that we all have a part to play. I think it's um, Archbishop of Canterbury said, you know, a, a million small acts of kindness create a tidal wave of love. And I know that does work, you know, in terms of the environment. Little things we do have a huge impact if we all work together. But we know, as you've shared, there are the structures that we're part of, the systems that we live in, where we aren't able to kind of affect the fossil fuels, the industries, what the governments are deciding, particularly not just here in the UK, but around the world. And that can lead us to losing hope, maybe feeling powerless. So what's your advice for us there? What can we do to activate this worry into action, but not let it just stop us doing anything? Immobilise us, as you said. Yeah. So... I would say it's, it's you know, this comes right back to what's your goal in, in your activism or in your engaging with the world. So if your goal, and it's understandable if it is, is to stop climate change and biodiversity loss, then you're placing your energy and attention in something that's very far in the future and very uncertain. And it would be understandable, of course, to want to do that because that's what we want to do. But it leaves us, you know, completely open, as you say, to that sense of despair and anxiety and immobilization. And so I have over time set my goal as something else. And my goal is to say I can look back and know that I lived with as much love and integrity as I could. And so this is, you know, regardless of the outcome of this, this is what 
I'm pinning my colors to. This is what I stand for in the world. This is how I want to be in the world. And I know that no act of love is ever lost or is ever wasted. So it's not we'll make it or we don't make it. There's a whole spectrum um, within that. And every act that we do, that it comes from that place of love and care for the planet and for each other, moves us in the right direction. Nothing is, is ever, ever lost. Joe Musker Sherwood, who has spoken so passionately and beautifully on this whole area of eco-anxiety or climate sorrow and helping us understand that actually if you are feeling anxious, worried, if you have that sorrow that Joe has beautifully expressed, it actually comes from a good place. It's what God has created you with that care and that compassion. And as Joe's reminded us, no act of love is lost or wasted. So don't underestimate the impact you have. And you may never know the impact you have. But actually, you won't know the impact you have until you meet your maker but don't let that stop you pressing on and keeping going setting your goals and as joe has reminded us asking ourselves what is my goal each and every day it has been such a pleasure and an honor and i want to mention that website again climateemergence.co.uk the facebook group is called self-care for climate activists thank you so much joe musker sherwood for joining us on the life issues podcast thank you helen it's been a pleasure 